Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. We're joined uh, by Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Michael, with the amount of fruit drop we've been seeing in groves lately, there's a great deal of interest among growers on anything they can do to re- reduce that and, and help stem that fruit drop a little bit. That was a topic covered during the recent Florida Citrus Growers Institute held in Avon Park. Uh, Dr. Tripti Vashith gave a talk on using gibberellic acid to help stem fruit drop during the institute. Give us some details on her research and some of the things she's finding with uh, gibberellic acid. Okay, yeah. And uh, Dr. Vashish has been working for some time now. It's probably almost five years uh, specifically on gibberellic acid and some of the benefits that that product can have in terms of improving tree health, um, both the vigor and growth of the trees, and also the, the fruit yields. Um, and again, we're talking about for trees that have uh, HLB or citrus screening disease. Um, she's shown that you know overall, when when you're doing when you're on a program of multiple applications of, of gibberellic acid, and primarily she's been looking at Valencia trees starting off, and um, you know they see just an overall health that, that's a result of re- reducing oxidative stress on those trees. Um, the trees are you know you're reducing the stress. The trees are able to um, better metabolize carbohydrates, you get better hormone balance, um, and just overall the health of the trees improve. And so um, there's a lot of benefits that she's shown um, for Valencia uh, that um, include things like um, synchronizing the flowering period when you're doing these applications in the fall. And and that's important, I think, for the growers because with HLB, we've seen that the, the flowering is not always synchronized. We get some uh, much spread out waves of flowering, and so you have uh, fruit uh, that's just not very well synchronized, and, um, and it, it delays and impacts the yields. Um, but also, again, seeing you know, more vegetative growth, you know, more leaves, healthy-looking leaves on trees, and larger fruit, and also a lower fruit drop. Yeah, it's important. I know, I know with those irregular flushes, the fungus that can get in there and, and even cause the premature fruit drop is is uh, it can be a problem as as well, um, and so that's that's good to get that more in sync. Um, you know, talk a little bit about the timing of those applications. You know, sort of where they're falling in the in the season. Yeah, so um, uh, really, the the program that that Dr. Vashist has been working on, it, it really relies on about five applications that are made in, in the fall and early winter months. And on Valencia, we're talking about starting these applications sometime in September. Um, so you could kind of have like a September, October, November, December, and maybe even into January, um, you know, five applications. And, and that timing is important because, um, you know, once you get um, into January, you know, closer to the bloom, you really have to be careful and hold off on these applications because it can have a negative impact on, on your bloom. And so, um, but we want to do it um, prior to the harvest and give, you know, to those five successive applications because it's taking that stress over off the trees for an extended period of time. And, and that's, it's doing a number of things during that, during those applications. Um, it, it's allowing, it, it's, 
reducing some of the hormones that cause uh, fruit drop, um, which is important, but it's also taking that, that stress off the tree so they can put more of their reserves into growing the fruit, getting those fruit larger size. And so um, I think one of the, the important things to stress is that it's not something you can achieve with just one or two gibberellic acid applications. Um, you know, the gibberellic acid products, are it's a plant hormone. They break down pretty quickly in the trees. And so you have um, just a small window of benefit initially provided by one application, but when you're doing it month after month for, for four or five consecutive months, um, that cumulative benefit, you know, really manifests itself in terms of tree health and yield. So it's really important to note that it is going to be a, a multiple application, consecutive applications month after month during those fall months where you're going to see the true benefit um, from applying gibberellic acid. Good deal. And I know certainly hearing a lot from growers that are out there using using the products uh, and, and, and trying to, to improve the fruit retention. So I think it's a good example of the research and the grower community working together to uh, try to address this problem of fruit drop. Yeah, it's definitely been helpful. We've had a lot of growers working um, with our researchers on this on this project, and and it's great to get to do this in commercial groves and have that collaboration with growers. Um, you know, Dr. Fashish has extended this also now into uh, the Hamlin crop, and and the application, the timing of applications is going to be different, um, a little bit different, based on the variety and, and the the time of the year it matures. And so um, she's doing this now with, with Hamlin's, and Hamlin's are one of those those crops that's given us a lot of problems. Those early season fruit are hard to keep on the trees with HLB, and the good news is that all of her early results with, with Hamlin, we're seeing the same trends in terms of all the benefits that we've seen on the Valencia crop seem to be holding true for Hamlin as well. And so I think that's really important for us um, on Hamlin's because that has been a, a, a I mean, not that Valencians aren't having problems, but, but Hamlin's even more so. We see a lot of that early season drop. And, and one of the benefits I think that she's seeing on the Hamlin side also is that um, when you're doing the gibberellic acid applications, it actually can uh, delay the full maturity a little bit. And with something like Hamlin, that's, that can actually be really important because um, if, if it's anything like most growers that are experienced like what we've experienced with our groves at the CREC, um, we have a hard time getting our hamlins to um, uh, to quit dropping before we can actually get them harvested. Um, you know, a lot of the processing plants have been opening later, and so it's been tougher to get people in early to get the fruit before they drop those hamlins. And so the gibberellic acid can actually have some benefit there in terms of holding those fruit on the trees a little bit longer, so you can actually get the pickers in. So uh, that's another you know important benefit that we're seeing out of this as well. Well, that's good news. Look forward to hearing more about that Hamlin work as it comes along. Also, Dr. Fernando Alvarez has been seeing some positive results with zinc and potassium applications to reduce fruit drop in his research. He spoke about this at the Institute also. Can you give us some highlights of what Dr. Alvarez is working on? Yeah, Dr. Alvarez, he's been doing some work for several years now looking at uh, some of the different micronutrients and zinc being one of those and showing how it's having a, a positive impact um, on, you know, the tree health and, and the yield. And some of that work he went into, um, uh, it shows some of the benefits. This is some, some early work that's not quite reached maturity yet, but he, he went through that at the Institute and, um, you know, wanted to get that out in front of growers right now 
So if, if they can take what's been presented in his presentation and, and you know, do some experiments on their own, maybe not go full across the whole entire grove, but try, try out some of the things he's been doing and uh, see if it'll have a benefit uh, for them uh, on their groves, you know, maybe trying out a small acreage right now. And I'd also mention that um, if, if you want to see more details, if you, if, if you didn't attend um, Institute and would like to review, um, you know, both Alvarez's presentation and Dr. Vashish, uh the Citrus agents, they've got those presentations from Institute are now online. And um, you can go to the website, citrusagents.ifis.ufl.edu, and all those all those video recordings are online, and you can go back and review all the details and uh, see what was presented, and and um, uh, or just refresh your memory if you, if you forgot what I was presented, but you were there. That's great. Yeah, that's that's a great resource and great way to go back and see those if you missed them. Well, to wrap things up, what's on the calendar in terms of upcoming events that citrus growers need to be aware of? Well, you know, we're hitting the, the summer months. We've got a lot of field work going. Um, we're in the in the planning stages right now for Citrus Expo. Obviously, it's coming up in August. That is that's the big event coming up, um, and so we are are getting our program lined up, speakers ready for that. Uh, so we look forward to having a a great another great show down in Fort Myers in August. Um, between now and then, there will be a number of of meetings that are likely taking place. Um, if 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 you want more details on that, you can check our website. Um, it's also the information is going to be in the uh, statewide citrus newsletter that goes out. And, of course, we'll always make sure that gets out through Southeast Agnet as well. Uh, you all have always done a great job of helping us get out the announcements on those meetings. And um, so, and again, and for some of you all who are listening, um, I know there will be some of us down at the uh, Florida Citrus Mutuals Annual Meeting down in Bonita Springs here uh, in the mid part of June. And, so uh, uh, if I haven't seen you since uh, all the COVID shutdowns, hopefully I could see some more people there in Bonita Springs in just a few weeks. Yep, I'll be there in uh, June, too, and look forward to seeing everybody as well. With that, Michael, I guess we'll wrap it up for this month and look forward to catching up with you again next month. All right. Thank you very much, Frank. I'm here today with Lauren Diepenbrock. She's an entomologist with the University of Florida based at the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Lauren, I know you have some new information on the Lebic millibug, but before we get into that, let's cover a little background. When was the Lebic millibug first ID'd in Florida? So it was actually first found in 2009 in the Boynton Beach area in a natural habitat. Um, and it wasn't until 2019 when we found it in citrus. We thought that perhaps it hadn't really had a chance to establish. A lot of times when an invasive comes in, they find it in one habitat, but then we're lucky and things eat it or the environment doesn't work out great and it doesn't survive. Unfortunately, 10 years later, there it is in citrus. Right, right. And uh, do you have any idea of where, the, where it came from, the mealybug? So we know that its origins are more in the uh, Indo-Asiatic region. Um, as far as how it got into Florida, that could be a matter of multiple things. It could have come on trade. It could have come on heavy winds. They're very small, so they're easy to pick up accidentally. So we know that it's on several of our neighboring in several uh, sorry in several of our neighboring countries um, and islands. So it could have been picked up in one of our major hurricanes. We don't know exactly how it landed here. We just know that it's here and it's problematic. Yes, and and typically, you know, what areas in the citrus growing regions is, is it most uh, most uh, located at? 
So far, we've found it throughout most of Central and South Florida. Um, it's probably a matter of time till they find it further north, but this is where we found it so far. Okay. And as for, for growers, any tips on what to look for, how to scout for it? So our scouting is not great. Um, it's one of those pests where it's really hard to see at low levels because most of the time you're going to see the juvenile life stages. They're very, very small. Um, and until it gets to be a higher amount where there's a lot of ovisacs together and it's really obvious, it's hard to just find them in the field just by looking. Um, things that you might come across are heavy areas of city mold. Usually if you have heavy areas of city mold, you have somebody who's producing honeydew. This is one of our major honeydew producers. So look up from there. You might find it or you might find some scales or something along those lines. Um, in the IPCs, we'll usually see a lot of black on the side of that, and that's sooty mold growing on your IPC. And also um, ant trails. Ants like to farm this bug, so we often see a lot of ant trails going back and forth from heavy infestation areas. Okay, good deal. And then in terms of damage, what sort of damage can the pest do in citrus? So the damage is going to depend on the age of the citrus tree and or fruit and then the amount of mealybugs that are there feeding on it. So the damage that's the most distinct to us usually is going to be the fruit damage. And what we're seeing is that fruit that's damaged early in fruit development is going to be the most damaged, most severely damaged. If you have a higher population of mealybugs, they'll kind of suck it dry or it looks like a little acorn. And a lot of times we get fruit drop. You'll get malformation around the calyx area, um, which as the fruit develops, that malformation can actually make it fall off because it weakens that junction. Um, we see dead leaves. We said deformed leaves, which in and of itself, that's probably not the end-all, be-all of, of things. But we also see branch dieback associated with heavy infestations. And inside of the IPCs, we've seen um, tree deaths of these young trees that have heavy infestations. So we can live with a few mealybugs, but when they get really really highly populated, then they're going to be a real problem. Right. And I guess for fresh fruit growers, it's a bigger problem than for the juice growers, too. Correct? It is. Um, and juice growers, you know, we can have some, our fruit don't have to be beautiful, but they do have to have fruit. So for us right now in juice fruit, I'm suggesting people focus on that fruit development period um, in the spring to try to protect your fruit as it's developing to keep it on the tree. If you can keep the fruit on the tree and it can develop to have nice juice, we're going to be okay. Fresh fruit's much more challenging because you can't sell an ugly fruit yet. Most people don't want any imperfections, which is a huge challenge for that market. Very much so. I'm, you know, and th that gets us to managing the mealybug. What have you learned uh, in your research about the best ways to manage this pest? So this is an area still under development, um, but what we are learning is that early season um, insecticide-based management can help with retaining your fruit. So. A lot of my growers are putting out um, Avento during bloom. It has a bee safe label, so that's a good material for that time of year. It's a systemic, and it gets in, and it will protect your early developing fruit. Um, and then I'm suggesting they follow it up after bloom with another material that has some, some systemic properties to help your fruit develop and keep the population down while your fruit are developing. After that, I don't have the rest of the equation figured out. <laughs> okay. But we can at least keep your fruit on the tree. Um, one of the things that we do know is that predatory insects and, and spiders are going to be really important in the long-term management of this pest. Um, we learned that from looking at colleagues in other countries who have dealt with this, reading literature, and talking to people who are dealing with this in other countries before us. Um, they've found that too much insecticide application can actually exacerbate your problem because you take out your natural enemies but kind of finding that right balance of where our chemical inputs need to be and then where we can lead, leave it up to predatory arthropods, you know, your insects and spiders, 
is, is kind of the balancing act that we're walking right now. Um, we know that we can't spray it entirely out of the system, but we can usually keep the population to a dull roar. We do have quite a few things that can consume this, but they don't really get active until later in the season. So there's going to be a point there where we can probably let the predators move in and do their thing, but it's, it's a balancing act. Right. And also, have you looked at maybe timing the applications with psyllid applications just to, you know, get some efficiencies with going through the groves? Yeah, that's some of the things that we're actually looking at right now, um, because that was, okay, what can I kill out with was my first question. And then my second question is, how do I make it work with current management? Um, unfortunately, it doesn't work exactly like psyllids do. So, Mealybug seems more tied to the ambient temperature and to fruit development than to flush. So for mealybugs, we know that we can aim most of our management towards heavy periods of flush and keep their populations down, which is great. Um, but for the mealybugs, we don't see any correlation in their population to when you see flush. So when you're spraying for psyllids, you might knock back some of the mealybugs, but you might not. And so we need to think about maybe we focus the, meal, the mealybug management in that early fruit set and development period and then flip into ACP management as we're getting more flush right after that. And I'm not going to say this is perfect, but it's where I'm sitting right now in my understanding of how to, how to put these into a program. Very good. Well, anything else you'd like to add? Um, just if you see this mealybug in your field, please let your local extension agent know we're working with the state of Florida to document where it's going um, just to help us get a better handle on it and hopefully try to reduce the spread. Okay, very good. Lauren, that was good information and we appreciate you joining us today. I am joined today by Ramdas Kanasari. He's a weed scientist with the University of Florida. Ramdas, you recently spoke at the Florida Citrus Growers Institute on the potential for herbicide injury and some research you've done. Um, but before we get into your herbicide injury research, let's talk a little bit about herbicide application techniques and basics of how to avoid problems with things like drift and off-target applications. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, Weed control is a critical component of uh, successful citrus production and uh, chemical weed control, utilizing herbicides, is the to-go strategy for the growers for, the, for doing that. But, you know, the, there is always downside of using chemical weed control, uh, you know, although it has a lot of advantages. The number one downside or, uh, you know, something that we need to be really careful about is the drift or movement uh, of the chemical into the non-targeted areas, especially in our case, in citrus, the canopy, the lower hanging, you know, lower branches or fruits hanging on the branches and canopy itself. So one of the main problems uh, we have or we are not actually uh, uh, paying attention to is the application conditions, right? I mean, it's, it's a complicated process, uh, to be honest with you, uh, because there are several factors involved in it, including the right weather, the right boom height, the pressure, things like that. Uh, compared to many other herbicide applications in citrus, we have a boom, or uh, we call it sometimes like a, you know, uh, uh, like like a um, a cover that we use, a spray hood, uh, you know, or herbicide boom. So technically, it should reduce the drift, or it should prevent the sprays onto the canopy. But many times, it will not happen because. Once the spray is release, released from the boom, from the nozzle, 
then you know depending on several uh, situations it can actually uh, move upward onto the canopy for example the droplet size so if we do not control the droplet size if we release a very fine ultra fine droplet it's going to uh, move up and hit the canopy or the fruits or the branch whatever and wind wind especially the weather conditions like wind has a major role to play in here high wind if you apply it in a high wind uh, combined with the smaller size uh, spray particles then again drift is going to happen so you know targeted application is very important in citrus uh, uh, herbicide spraying uh, again one thing that uh, we always overlook is the spray pressure uh, higher spray pressure always create smaller droplet size and as i mentioned earlier smaller the droplet size then there's a chance of higher drift so we have to really watch out for the spray pressure uh, likewise i talked about boom in underneath the boom we have several nozzles so at the end of that uh, boom is off center nozzle or also known as oc nozzle uh, which growers you know the term that growers always use oc nozzle its angle is something uh, that we really don't pay attention to and higher the angle or you know uh, if it's not uh, calibrated or uh, placed correctly then again the spray is going to move upwards uh, rather than onto the weed it's going to move onto the canopy and again if there's a contact happens there will be injury so all those things for example even the tractor speed i mean we may not pay attention to this if we if we have a higher tractor speed it itself is creating a wind you know the tractor itself will be creating a wind and and again it's detrimental uh, to the uh, and, and it can cause drift and things like that so higher nozzle angle oc nozzle angle oc nozzle angle higher boom height higher tractor speed high spray pressure presence of wind can all play together and you know cause the spray to drift onto the canopy so so things like you know these are the things that we have to keep in mind at the same time we can explore the use of adjuvants such as drift retardants or maybe you'd like some specialty nozzles things like that so we should be able to uh, reduce uh, such possibilities of drift very good all important considerations when making applications uh, growers are certainly worried about stress on citrus, uh, given that HLB is endemic in all the mm -hmm. groves. Your research took a look at glyphosate, which is an important weed control tool. What did your work reveal when it comes to glyphosate? Yeah, so again, uh, glyphosate is one of the important tools uh, when it comes to chemical weed control in citrus. If I'm not wrong, uh, uh, the, the statistics shows that uh, Uh, it's the most popular herbicide the most used herbicide area wise uh, if you look at the whole united states citrus production so it is very important tool and and uh, you know so we need to keep keep in mind certain things i mean uh, so one of the things we were trying to see is uh, you're using glyphosate maybe in our area there are several uh, growers that primarily rely on glyphosate so heavy glyphosate uh, reliant weed management programs are there so they apply like at least three times a year right so one of my uh, objective was to see such glyphosate applications you know, you know repeated applications of glyphosate whether it is contributing to the citrus fruit drop because we we cannot afford more uh, fruit drop now it's already the hlb itself is creating a lot of stress physiological stresses and ultimately ending up in pre harvest uh, fruit drop and loss of fruit boxes per tree and things like that so we were looking at if, what 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 some of these weed management practices whether they are contributing to this uh, to this stress 
So one of the study uh, we actually uh, published, I mean, it's accepted in Hot Science Journal. Uh, it will be published pretty soon. So we were looking at the link between the glyphosate rate and the fruit drop. So one, uh, if you look at the big picture, in our study, the use of glyphosate did not enhance citrus fruit drop or it did not decrease the yield, okay? Uh, but a small observation we found was if, the, if you use a higher glyphosate rate, it may impact the citrus fruit detachment force, or SPF. So this, this is the force with which the citrus fruit is attached to the peduncle. Uh, and, and lower the force means a higher chance of uh, fruit drop. Uh, there will, if the fruit may be maturing fast, if there will be a pre-harvest drop happening, uh, or possibility of pre-harvest drop. So we found that higher the higher rates of glyphosate can impact or actually reduce that fruit detachment force. So, but again, when it comes to the big picture, uh, there is, it was not shown, uh, it was not observed in the, the final uh, yield or, or final uh, fruit drop count and things like that. So something is masking that. Probably the HLB pressure itself is masking this type of effect, but maybe to be cautious, to be on the cautious side, we are asking the growers, uh, you know, uh, to use a glyphosate alternative for weed control during the fruit maturing window and then come back to the glyphosate after harvesting or picking just to be on the kosher side of things but but this is this is this is a, 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 a kind of a, a information this is the type of information we want to give to the growers you know it's teeny tiny things but at the same time if, if it's helping them to save some boxes that's what we, we want to aim you're aiming at and you know i know you looked at the persistence of glyphosate in the soil and the impact on root health and you were seeing it there but obviously it was not enough to to impact yields in that way is that correct yes yes so uh, uh you know again in our studies uh, we have some graduate students uh, looked at the uh, how long glyphosate can persist in the soil especially focusing on southern florida soil sandy soils so uh, we found glyphosate is a material, chemically, uh, it, it has a very low half-life. It will not, I mean, it's not designed to stay in the soil for a long time, especially when it comes to sandy soil, it, will, it, can, it can be, again, it will not persist much. So again, our findings was in line with that. Uh, glyphosate was uh, dissipated quickly from the topsoil because, uh, you know, uh, uh, glyphosate likes to bind uh, to materials like clay clay minerals, and we have, like, sandy soil, we don't have much clay in our soil, or for that matter, no organic matter in our soil, so it, there is no place for the glyphosate to stick and stay. But, so it, it's actually uh, dissipated quickly from the topsoil. But, you know, because of the peculiarity of our location, especially the flatwood soil, or southwest Florida citrus production soil, we have, we have a hard pan under, underneath the soil, which is an organic layer. Uh, I'm not an expert in soil science, but I think it's uh, from my colleagues. I, I learned that it's, a, it's an organic or sporic layer of soil. So generally, most materials movement are restricted due to this uh, hard pan. The same was also applicable for glyphosate. Although it disappeared faster from the topsoil, it kind of lingered. But its movement was restricted in the subsoil because of this hard pan, the peculiarity of the region. So what happened was, uh, in our studies, we consistently observed glyphosate staying in that subsoil, which happened to be a you know uh, a, the root zone of citrus. Uh, where more, if, you, if you think about a mature citrus, established citrus tree in the uh, in Flor in, in South Florida, the root zone also happens to be in that area. So so you can say that there is a yes, there is a possibility of glyphosate persisting in the root zone of the citrus. But again, we did 
not see anything uh, that you know any observations that that is that can we can tell that it, this persistence is uh, causing a impact on the root or impact on the food drop and things like that. But you know there may be more uh, observations and studies and trials need to be done. But 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 the point is, you know. You would, one would think that glyphosate is something that really moves fast through the soil, especially in the sandy soil, but, you know, may not be the case. It can stay in the root soil, especially in southwest Florida, because of this hard pan. That this will be applicable for most herbicides, actually. Okay, very good. And I, uh, did you look at other herbicides in the study? And if so, tell us a little bit about what you found with those. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, although we started with glyphosate as a, as a model, uh, study material uh, because of its widespread use. We're also looking into or screening several other herbicides, including pre-emergent, some of the popular pre-emergent herbicides uh, like Indaciflam or Alliant and Diuron, things like that. So, uh, so far, um, it's, it's in the initial stage. And again, we need to re re repeat the studies in the location as well as the time, uh, different seasons and things like that. But, but so far, uh, we are not seeing any trend. Maybe we may have to do it in a longer term. Uh, then we may we may see something else. But for, for now, we are thinking uh, based on our observations, our pre-emergent herbicides are not impacting uh, any of the uh, uh, root growth or any any disease incidents or maybe fruit drop or things like that. So far, uh, we have we, our, our, our herbicide programs uh, are are safe or or yield safe. I would say. Very good. So, I mean, if if the growers kind of follow your advice up front about making proper applications of herbicides, this research yes. is kind of telling telling us that uh, they should be okay with the available options that are out there in terms of herbicide. Exactly. Use. So the the number one again the number one uh, uh, point I want to bring to the table here is the yeah, apply it, uh, to the target accurately. Read the label and understand how uh, that material, uh, you know, has to be applied, whether it needs a drift retardant or not and things like that. You know, then uh, the, the proper uh, application measures that I discussed uh, in the initially uh, about the room height, pressure, speed, things like that, uh, we, we will have a very safe uh, weed management program. Very good. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, that's all. Uh, thank you very much. So it's, again, uh, as I said, uh, our program is uh, extensively looking at uh, uh, you know the impacts, the crop impacts. I mean, efficacy is one thing. Uh, we have some tools, uh, and again, uh, you know, there is a there is a, there is always issue about herbicide shortage, supply chain issues. So uh, we are we may be you know working with a very uh, minimal amount of tools, herbicides in the toolbox. Uh, but but you know the, my my program aims to bring the best out of it, improving the efficacy. I'll be doing talk on how to improve. Uh, you know there may be tiny tiny bit of things that we can uh, talk about, but it can help the grower to improve the efficacy. At the same time, my another motto is you know to just uh, kill the weeds without hurting the crop, hurting our tree. I mean we cannot afford another uh, you know uh, fruit drop issues and things like that. So you know that's that's what we are on, uh, aiming at: kill the weeds but without hurting the well, that sounds like a very good plan. Uh, with that, Ramdas, I appreciate you joining the podcast today. Thanks for uh, stopping in and chatting. Thank you very much, Frank. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. 